Please turn in your copies, if you wish, to Second uh, Samuel. Second Samuel 14. I'm going to read, beginning at verse 28, and finish this 14th chapter. Second Samuel 14, 28. Through 33, I'd like to ask Bob if he would ask God's blessing on the word. Second Samuel 28, 14, 28. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, and he saw not the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And he sent again a second time, but he would not come. Therefore he said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house, and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king, to say, Wherefore am I come from Geshur? It were better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face. And if there be iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab came to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Let us pray. <clears throat> our Father, our God, we do thank you that you've drawn us together this morning to worship you and praise you in name, readings, songs, and in your teaching, Father. We do pray that as your servant David brings us passage and a troubling time in the life of your servant David, that you would bring clarity and understanding to us, Father, and show us a better way. Father, we ask for your blessings now upon this word, that you would renew our minds, Father, strengthen us in our <coughs> Amen. Well, I think most of you know, most of us know where we have come from, where we have been <clears throat> in following the life of David, in following the consequences of his sin regarding Bathsheba and Uriah. We have seen these things and they have led to this now, that which we have just read. Absalom, of course, murdered his brother Amnon, or had him murdered. Absalom then fled to Geshur and was there three years. And he came up with this idea of getting Joab to help him to be brought back. And so Joab sent that woman of Tekoa, put words in her mouth. Those words gave David something to hang his hat on, if we can put it that way. Some excuse 
her arguments really weren't any good. And yet it gave David a hook to put his love for Absalom on, we could say. And so he told Joab, go and fetch the young man, bring him back, but he shall not see my face. Well, that was not enough for Absalom. And after being there two years, two full years, we're told, he contrived in his heart and mind to get Joab's help again, to enlist the uh, authority. Joab was a general, David's chief general, his chief of staff to get this chief of staff to convince David to let Absalom come and see his face as it is put in the scriptures. We see somewhat surprisingly, do we not? David giving in to these arguments or whatever Joab said to him to bring Absalom back, to let him see his face. We still don't see any repentance on the part of Absalom. We read that he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. We see a lot of people, to put it that way, bowing their face to the ground, going to church, spending that time in the morning worship service, and then leaving, really leaving the Christian community at the end of the service and spending the rest of their week in the world. So we know from our own experience and others that we may know that it is very possible to bow down to the king and especially when it's an earthly king such as David. And then we see David kissing Absalom. This really provoked thoughts in me during the week regarding what was being done here by David. And I was very happy to hear my brother pray just now that the Lord would show us a better way than the way that David chose. And I hope that we'll be able to see that this morning, a better way. If you wish to turn to 1 Corinthians, I want to read the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not even among the Gentiles, that one of you hath his father's wife. Incest. Isn't that what we've just read and heard and been looking at the last several weeks? That incestuous behavior of Amnon? that was really the, 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 the match that lit the fire on this whole thing, humanly speaking. We know that God was behind it, but was it not incest, just like this that we read here? Paul goes on, and ye are puffed up and did not rather mourn that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. Is that not the next problem that David did not execute judgment upon Amnon for his sin. And was that not the means that Absalom laid hold of in a large sense, that he laid hold on 
to become the judge and the executioner of his brother Amnon. Because David had not done his duty. For I, Paul continues, verily being absent in body but present in spirit, have already, as though I were present, judged him that has so wrought this thing. In the name of our Lord Jesus, ye being gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Do you see the parallel? I'm not suggesting that, that David's behavior and that the things that we've been looking at in 2 Samuel, I'm not suggesting that those are types of what we find in 1 Corinthians, of what we find Paul speaking of. Please understand, I'm not suggesting it's a type, but there seems to be a parallel there. At least I saw it, and I hope you do as well. So I want to look at this, what Paul has to say about this. And I'm going to issue a disclaimer, lest anyone should think that that there is some kind of sin in our camp, that there's some kind of behavior that I'm addressing. That's not the case, whatever. Please be assured that this is happenstance, to put it humanly speaking, providential, I trust. God bringing me to these thoughts. So don't imagine that this subject is being brought up because there's some specific need in our body for it to be brought up. But I see the parallel here between David's behavior. Now, what was Paul addressing to the Corinthians? He said virtually nothing, at least very little, about that incestuous man and nothing at all about the woman. What was the problem? The problem was with the church's response or the failure thereof of the church to respond. What was the problem with David of which we have been looking at more than once but repeatedly behaving as Corinthians did, as that church did and failing to do what they were called to do. He was failing to do what he was called to do and he even kissed his son Absalom. How can these things be? Should Absalom have been granted his desire to see the king's face while remaining unrepentant? I say absolutely not. Should David have kissed him? I say absolutely not. And this is the very thing that Paul is charging the church at Corinth with in principle. In principle, the Corinthians are accused, Calvin said, not because one of their number has sinned, but because, as is stated afterward, they encouraged by connivement. Connivement, that's a word that brought all the little red squigglies under it on my computer. They encouraged by connivement, a crime that was deserving of the severest punishment. They encouraged by connivement to connive. If you're not familiar with that, to connive is very simply to close the eyes to a wrong or to a fault, to permit that which should be openly opposed. In our vernacular, perhaps, to look the other way, 
to look the other way, thus making oneself an accessory to the crime by looking the other way. And don't we see that in our society? And sadly, do we not see it in churches? All around us, probably. Do we not things, see things connived at by people looking the other way? I'm not his judge. Why should I say anything to them about living together out of wedlock? I'm not the judge of those people. I'm not the judge of that man that's cheating on his wife. I'm not the judge of that person that's stealing from his employer. And they look the other way. They connive at it. That's what the Corinthian church was doing. And that's Paul's complaint. And that's what David was doing in taking back his son and kissing him. Paul goes on to say that they have not rather mourned. They should have mourned, but they have not mourned over it. Sin in their body, the church, the body of Jesus Christ, sin is there, and they have not mourned. And that suggests in and of itself compliance. You see, the church's testimony before the world is at stake in that. And I don't doubt but what David's testimony before the nations around him was at stake. But his love for Absalom was so powerful, he was willing to do that. And again, I've been shocked as I've been studying through this. My wonderful, beloved David behaving like that. And then I look in the mirror and see another beloved David behaving in bad fashion. But Paul says they have not rather mourned. The church's testimony, the church's testimony is at stake. And when the testimony of the church is not right, it brings reproach upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We learned in seminary, I think we did anyway, um, that the three marks, and there are disagreements. Some think there's one mark, just the preaching of the word. Some think there's two marks, the preaching of the word and the sacraments. The general consensus is that there are three marks of a true evangelical church. The preaching of the gospel, the sacraments, and discipline. The Belgic Confession states it this way. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. Remember that, for correcting faults. It governs itself according to the pure word of God. Those three marks of a true scriptural church, of a true evangelical church, Al Mohler, the president, at least the last time I knew he was, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in in Louisville, Kentucky, he said this, church discipline is the missing mark. 
Church discipline is the missing mark in most professedly Christian churches today. The missing mark. You've missed the mark. It's the missing mark. I believe that he wrote a, probably a small book on it, but that's the title of the book, Missing the Mark, I believe. But here in this passage in 1 Corinthians, in the fifth chapter, Paul would have accused them unjustly, Calvin said. He would have been accusing them unjustly if the church had not this power. But Christ has given the church this power. Not one man, not one mini-pope, not some hierarchy of bishops. He's given the church He's given the church the power. And he goes on to say, Calvin, that is, those commit sin that do not make use of this power. Because it's for correcting faults. And even as Paul says in his epistle, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he has told them to deliver Deliver this man. He's speaking, most believe, of excommunication. Deliver it over to Satan. Even as David leaves Absalom and Geshur for those years, and he should have continued to leave him there until he returned on his own, as it were, repentant. And he should have been on his knees crying unto God as he did in so many psalms, crying unto God to give his son repentance, to give his son faith, to give him a new heart. Instead of just breaking down and letting him come back. Have any of you had a son or a daughter that reached that magical age of 18 when all of a sudden they knew it all? And they started giving you problems. They started giving you trouble. And they went off, perhaps. And then they came back. Did you let them come back without any apology, without any repentance? How did that work for you? It doesn't usually work well at all. They take advantage of it, even as Absalom, taking advantage of his father, David. But deliver over to Satan. Excommunicate. The sinner is to become an alien. He's, in Christ's words, he's to be treated as a Gentile and a publican. Do we shun Gentiles and publicans? No. I'm not talking about shunning people. I don't believe that's the teaching of Scripture. Not the way some churches attempt to utilize that. Shunning. But he's to become an alien. He's outside. Excommunicate. Outside. Ex. The fellowship. Communion. Excommunicate. He's to be put out for the destruction of the flesh. Calvin thinks the, the meaning of Paul here is for the softening of the flesh. And perhaps he has something there. Perhaps if God wishes to use the world to beat him up, to pound him down, to need him, he'll become softened to the things of God. But is not the Christian at war with the flesh? That the flesh 
Paul says, be destroyed for the destruction of the flesh. Are we not then opposing the believer's enemy, the flesh? The Christian is at war with the flesh. Second Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of that importance of repentance, does it not? In those verses 9 and 10, Paul says there, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorry. This is not speaking of the same occasion. But he says, not that you were made sorry, but that you were made sorry unto repentance. Send him out of the body. Give him over. Deliver him over to Satan is the expression. That he might be made sorry, according to this language. Unto repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly sort, that ye might suffer loss by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. A repentance which bringeth no regret, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. What do you want for your kinsmen, your children? What should you want for your Absaloms, to put it that way? That godly sorrow would work repentance. That's not going to happen if you kiss them like David kissed Absalom. That's not going to happen if you let them come back and have their way without repentance. That's not what Paul was teaching here, I don't believe at all. But deliver them over. David as I've suggested in kissing his son, was doing exactly what the Corinthians did passively. They did nothing at all. And that's what Paul was charging them with and challenging them with regard to. They did nothing at all. They tolerated this man to remain in their midst. It is actually reported, he says, in some of the writers that I Check. they had a big length of language dealing with what that meant and what it should mean and so on. But most of them agreed that it was like spread all around. It was like spread all around. It wasn't just actually reported to Paul. What he was talking about was that it, the, the sin and your failure to deal with it sounds around the entire community and beyond. Again, bringing reproach to the church. Anyone in Corinth who spoke of the church in that city spoke of it. In other words, unbelievers, those outside the church, and perhaps some pretending friends in other bodies. But anyone in Corinth who spoke of that church in that city spoke of the fornication among the Christians. That's how people are. There may have been a multitude of good works that that church had been doing. That's not what people talk about. You know how people like to talk. That's not what they talked about. They talked about this evil in the church. They talked about this wickedness. So they could say to their Christian neighbors, oh, is that what you're like? You're one of those Corinthians. You're one of those people at that church in Corinth. 
Is that not what people respond like? Is that not how they behave? I don't know how long ago, two or three, I guess it's been three decades ago now, all that evil that was broadcast via the television of these televangelists and their wickedness. You know about it, some of you that are older. You remember that. Did that not bring reproach upon the church in general? Did that not bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ? These people named the name of Christ, and perhaps some of them were true Christians that fell into sin, but it brings reproach upon the name of Christ, and how much more reproach when nothing is done about it. That's how David was behaving. Bringing shame upon the church, bringing shame upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Surely the surrounding nations were speaking of this terrible fratricide committed by Absalom against Amnon and with impunity. In other words, his dad wouldn't do anything about it. But Paul says that they should be set apart, set aside, set out of the body for the destruction of the flesh. So deliver such a one. What flesh? What flesh is being spoken of here? Just go on Bible Gateway and see how many times the word flesh is used. See the variations. It's almost always the Greek word sarx. Flesh. Speaks of flesh. In this passage in Corinthians, sarx. But in other passages where, where it's not really it, those passages that have been passed, that we've referred to in passing, even with regard to Christian liberty and conscience and so on, and not offending, not giving offense, when Paul speaks of, I will not eat meat anymore, it's not sarks. And in 1 Corinthians 8.13, he uses a different word. The other word is creus. But it's hardly ever used. But all these other times when the word sarx is used, it's used. And I believe that what we find there is that the context, as we stress a lot, the context has to be looked at. You have to put it into context because it can mean, just as it does in our language, flesh can mean a lot of different things. John 1.14, he was manifested in the flesh. Sarks. The same word, but it's not negative, obviously, in connection with our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's the same word. And yet, in Romans 7, in verses 5, 18, let's just glance there if you want. I want to make this point for our understanding. In verse 5, Paul says... For we, when we were in the flesh, comma, the sinful passions which were through the law wrought in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. When we were in the flesh, that's negative, isn't it? Sarks, again. And in verse 18, the same sort of thinking. 
When Paul says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And again, in the last verse of that seventh chapter, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself, with the mind indeed, serve the law of God. That's great. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Serves the flesh with the law of sin. Again, sarks, but it's, it's negative. And you have to look at the context in which that word is employed. And I don't believe that Paul is, is intending that, that, that this man be delivered over to Satan in order to wallow in the, in the flesh and, and do things that he ought not to be doing but that, that for the destruction of the flesh, but that these, his will... That's according to the flesh. When, when Paul says, speaking of his will, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. He's to learn through that. And it's all according to God's grace and the working of the Holy Spirit. Through this means of grace. Did you hear that? Through this means of grace. Excommunication is a means of grace. Paul says that because it's to deliver his spirit. Save his spirit. Destroy the body of the flesh. To save. That's the design. Do we say, oh, that's no good or that's stupid or whatever? Because maybe it doesn't always work? Does it always work to preach the gospel? No. But we're still doing what God commands us to do. And here God commands this. For the destruction of the flesh. And in 2 Corinthians, in the second chapter, which most, not all, most writers, most commentators believe is a reference to this same man of 1 Corinthians 5, where where we read about, well, Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech. He's talking about his first letter and so on. But he goes on to tell them about this man and how that, through this, through this behavior, through them obeying him and delivering this man over, that it appears that he was brought to repentance. He says in verse 5 of that second chapter of 2 Corinthians, But if any hath caused sorrow, he hath caused sorrow not to me, but in part, that I press not too heavily to you all. Sufficient to such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the many, the church, so that contrarywise ye should rather forgive him and comfort him, lest by any means such a one should be swallowed up with his overmuch sorrow. You see the end of excommunication there. You see the goal of discipline there. And it was wrought out, this means of grace, the Holy Spirit employed in the hands of the church, as it were. And it brought about the end for which God had ordained it. It appears from this passage, Calvin said, that he had been brought to repentance after having been admonished by the church. 
Not looking the other way, but after having been admonished by the church. Hence, Paul gives orders then that he be forgiven and that he be supported by consolation. The beautiful end of church discipline. In discipline, there is to be equity and clemency. Never forget that. Strictness and moderation. And if God be pleased, it works. It has its effect on the individual. I think it's related somewhat, and a number of writers thought so, in Galatians 6.1, when Paul says there, Brethren, if, even if a man be overtaken in any trespass, ye who are spiritual, restore such... That's, that's the whole key. That's the goal. Restoration. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You don't have a meeting of the elders in some Presbyterian elder board. You don't have a meeting of those and all these old men sitting around with these scowls on their faces and they're going to really hammer this guy. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. A spirit of gentleness looking to thyself. He may have been the person mentioned, one writer said, in 1 Corinthians 5, who had married his stepmother. He may have been someone who had been guilty of a personal insult to the apostle. That's this man spoken of in 2 Corinthians. These are some of the thoughts that writers have. But this writer says the main point is that he was a sinner whom the discipline of the church had saved. That's the main point. And don't we read again and again in Luke 15, the angels in heaven rejoicing over one sinner coming to repentance. The aim of all discipline is the restoration of the fallen. Discipline, again, I repeat, is a means of grace. The church, this church's condemnation, this church in Corinth, its condemnation of this guilty man fell upon his conscience as the sentence of God and brought him to tears to the feet of Christ. What if David had behaved toward Absalom that way? In the hands of God, surely we must allow that he would possibly have been brought to repentance and come to the feet of his father in tears not in that false and phony bowing. And then David could have kissed him in truth. Could have kissed him in truth. The judgment of the church is the instrument of God's love, this writer went on to say. And the moment is it, it is accepted in the sinful soul, it begins to work as a redemptive force. That's the idea. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the idea. Oh, if David had only, I was going to say known this, and we know he didn't read Corinthians, but surely he knew his God. He knew his God, the God that had forgiven him, the God that had brought him to repentance. Surely he knew. Why was he so much easier on Absalom than he was on himself? The humiliation it inflicts is that which God exalts. 
That's speaking of the judgment of the church, the sorrow, that which he comforts. But when a scandal comes to light in a Christian congregation, when one of its members is discovered in a fault, gross, palpable, and offensive, what is the significance of that movement of feeling which inevitably takes place? This writer asks, what is it? In how many has it the character of goodness and of severity? Goodness and severity, of condemnation and of compassion, of love and of fear. Sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Pity and shame. The only character that has any virtue in it to tell for the sinner's recovery. Bring him to shame. Through love, we could put it that way. If you ask nine out of ten people what a scandal is, and this man wrote this 150 years ago, but it's just as true today. If you ask nine people out of ten what a scandal is, they will tell you it is something which makes talk. You know what they mean. It's something for gossip. And the talk in nine cases out of ten will be malignant, affected, more interesting to the talkers than any story of virtue or piety. Well, I don't want to hear about that good deed that man did. Tell me about that. That's how we are by nature. That's how we are. Scandal itself, in short, far more truly than its theme, is wicked. The scandal, the gossip, is generally more wicked than its theme. Something to think about. Does anybody imagine that gossip is one of the forces that waken conscience? You think you can wake somebody's conscience up by going and telling them a juicy bit of gossip? No. No, not at all. You think that it works for the redemption of our fallen brethren? to be broadcasters, gossips, the church telegraph? Oh, not at all. That doesn't work for the good of the brother at all. Do we think that that's one of the forces, gossip that is, that wake in conscience and work for the redemption of our fallen brethren? If this is all we can do, if this is all we can do, in the name of all that is Christian, this man has said, let us keep silence. Let us keep silence. Every word spoken about a brother's sin that is not prompted by a Christian conscience, that does not vibrate with the love of a Christian heart, is itself a sin against the mercy and the judgment of Christ. David should have done something. He should not have behaved as we later see the Corinthian church behaving by overlooking sin. By overlooking sin. By not doing anything about it. By not calling it what it is. By not crying unto the individual for repentance. By not praying for him to repent. 
that the Lord would give him repentance, that the Lord would draw him back to himself, that the Lord would restore him. The officials of a church may deal in their official place with offenses against soberness, purity, or honesty. They are bound to deal with them, a writer says, whether they like it or not. And I promise you that we don't like it. We hope we never have to deal with anything like that. Whether they like it or not. But their success will depend upon the completeness with which they and those whom they represent, the church, those whom they represent, have renounced not only the vices which they are judging, listen clearly, not only, renounce not only the vices which they are judging, to have the officials, to have the elders, anyone else in an official place to stand back and say, well, I wouldn't get drunk. Well, I wouldn't go cheat on my wife. Well, I wouldn't lie. And to worry about that while they're doing it themselves. That is out of keeping with the mind and spirit of Christ. That's not what the discipline is about. That's not what the people that are charged with maintaining discipline is about. The drunkard, the sensualist, the thief know perfectly well that drunkenness, sensuality, and theft are not the only sins which mar the soul. They know that there are other vices just as real, if not so glaring, if not so conspicuous, they're just as real which are equally fatal to the life of Christ in man and as completely disqualify men for acting in Christ's name. They're conscious. These people, the drunkard or the sensualist or the thief, they're conscious that it is not a bona fide transaction when their sins are impeached by men whose consciences endure with equanimity the reign of, listen, the reign of meanness, duplicity, pride, hypocrisy, self-complacency. That's what the church at Corinth was basically doing, or at least a large number of the membership. That's what they were doing. They are aware that God is not present where these evils are dominant. And that God's power to judge and save can never come through such channels. They're aware of that. This isn't the way that Christ operated. This isn't the way that Christ restored sinners. You know that Christ went around preaching to the publicans and the sinners. And they were drawn to him. Did he go pounding them on the head about their sin? said, I am meek and lowly. All ye that are heavy laden, come unto me and find rest in me. The means of grace. The church discipline. It's been ordained of God and it's been ordained of God through Jesus Christ for the saving. The restoration 
of souls. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we thank thee for thy truth. And our Father, again, we confess our sadness with David, our joy with Paul. Help us to learn, O Lord our God, from thy truth, how thou would have us to live. O Lord our God, may we hide thy word in our hearts, we ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction, please. 1 Corinthians 16, 23 and 24. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.